Welcome to Connected Learning TV at Educator Innovator. Today is October 11th, and I'm your host for this conversation. I'm Joe Dillon, I'm with the Denver Writing Project, and I teach at Rangeview High School in Aurora, Colorado. Um, I'm gonna let our guests introduce themselves. So if you don't mind, I'll, uh, would you all introduce yourselves? Let's let Nicole go first. Hi everyone, my name is Nicole Mira. I'm an assistant professor of urban teacher education at Rutgers and a former high school English teacher. Happy to be here. Ramey, what do you think? Will you go next? Sure, I'll introduce myself next. I'm Ramey Kalir. I'm an assistant professor of information and learning technologies at the University of Colorado in Denver. And I'm a former middle school math teacher and a former high school social studies teacher. That leaves you, Ontario. Hi everyone, my name is Antero Garcia. I'm an assistant professor uh, in the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University. Uh, I'm also a former high school English teacher and I'm excited to talk with all of you. Terrific, so first of all, thanks to all of you for joining today. We're really excited about this because it kicks off uh, a webinar series, I think with uh, talking with authors here on Educator Innovator um, during a project we're calling um, what we've called marginal syllabus, and now it's called writing. Ramey, what the heck is this project called? Uh, during the 2017-18 uh, school year, the marginal syllabus and uh, educator innovator with the National Writing Project uh, are hosting a series of conversations under the theme of writing our civic futures. So that's our organizing theme, writing our civic futures. Yes and not to be confused with the title of this episode, which is Reimagining Youth Civic Engagement, which, which is, could also be confused with the title of the article, which I will read now. Uh, it's actually a chapter. It's Civic Participation Reimagined, Youth Interrogation and Innovation in the Multimedia, Multimodal Public Sphere. So that was a lot of titles. So for us to navigate. But I think what I want to do is to kick this conversation off is just hear a little bit from Nicole and Ontario about the writing of this chapter. And then we'll talk a little bit more about this project and we'll have more of a free flowing conversation about questions we have about the chapter itself. But first, Ontario and Nicole, can you talk to us a little bit about, a little bit about this chapter and maybe sort of the work behind it? Just to, is there a, is there a title for this section of the talk? Should we, can we add another? Another title is this. Let's call this section of the, of the talk, um, Nicole and Ontario provide background. Perfect, thank you. Uh, I'll start us off. We, uh, Ontario and I have been working together for a long time. We were colleagues uh, at UCLA and we write together a lot. And two of the things that we've been thinking about a lot in our work are, number one, uh, the field of civic engagement broadly defined. Uh, both of us, ever since we've worked with high school students and beyond, have been interested in what it means to educate students in the school, not only for personal and professional success, but also for civic success and getting involved in, in the democratic process. Uh, and we felt that when we looked at a lot of the current literature on civic education and civic engagement, that it seemed like there was a bit of a lag going on, that so much has changed over the past 15 to 20 years uh, because of the advent of web 2.0 social media tools that we felt like the the literature wasn't quite catching up with what civic engagement means today 
So when we saw this call that came out, it's the Review of Research and Education is a, a journal that's pretty much about creating lit reviews, literature reviews of what's going on in the field. Uh, and Dr. Mariana Suto Manning and Dr. Maisha Wynn were editing uh, an issue of this, of this journal, thinking about how we challenge inequities in education. And we thought that one area where inequities need to be ch challenged is in the area of civic education and engagement. So we kind of had the idea of writing a piece where we would synthesize what is going on in the field and then talk about how participatory culture and new media and also youth forms of engagement um, were transforming what we mean by civic engagement and pushing us into a new realm. So Ontario, if you want to pick up from there. Yeah, I think... Uh... I, I, I'll, I'll corroborate everything Nicole said. Uh, I'd just add that the, the way that Nicole and I were thinking about this and have been thinking about um, these ideas in different spaces uh, has been informed both by the work we've been doing, imagining what civics looks like and is enacted and how it's enacted in classrooms uh, with other NWP members and teachers um, and with work that we'll probably share uh, later on in this conversation uh, with youth through the UCLA Council of Youth Research. Uh, and so there's some methodological pieces that we want to think through, both at, from a researcher and practitioner stance that comes out throughout this article. Um, but Nicole highlighted kind of the three, I think, areas that, were, that are intersecting in this work, right? So who's defining what, what is civics and, and who, who are civics for? Um, what, what does it mean in terms of participation and participatory culture or a connected learning today? Uh, and then what does this mean in the lives of youth, particularly today, as we have this conversation in 2017, um, under increasingly uh, restrictive and, and challenging context of, of growing up as a young person uh, in the United States. That was awesome. As beginning background information, um, I do think that this is a good time because what we want to do in this conversation is, first, I think, Anytime we're gathering authors or writers, and then we're going to trans. What we want to do is hear from the writers first about their sub, you know, about the writing and about their subject area before we transition to a conversation that will maybe be a little more reader centered. I mean, of course, providing readers the opportunity to interact with authors. So I think now might be the time to talk about some of that um, methodologic methodological piece you were talking about. Maybe it's time to give a little background on why par, et cetera why it's important, that kind of thing, before we get into sort of back and forth. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think, Nicole, hopefully you can give kind of like the, the overview of YPAR in a second, but I'll just say our, our audience for this, right, and for, for the journal, like the, the, the initial audience that this is for is for a researcher audience, right? So, so we write in, you know, a mode that might feel less than exciting, right, for, for different kinds of audiences. This isn't what my, my grandma is excited to read necessarily. Uh, and so just thinking about that, right, as we talk about, you know, ways to imagine this, we point to opportunities for practitioner work, but, but hopefully this is where, you know, the marginal syllabus work tries to, you know, elicit key ways um, that this work is enacted in classrooms. Yeah, and then just to give a brief overview of, of some of the, the big topics that we were thinking about. So I mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, it seemed like the field of civic education and engagement was lagging a little bit behind the times. So we have a chart early on in our article where we kind of list a lot of the measures that for the past, I mean, really decades have been considered the gold standard of measuring civic engagement. And we're talking about very traditional modes of engagement, such as uh, voting, reading a newspaper, 
participating in a political campaign by donating money or time. And those are all still important forms of civic engagement. But the more that Ontario and I thought about our work recently and what young people are doing, especially in the online sphere, we felt like the those measures are not enough. And they're definitely not accessing many of the innovative practices that young people are engaging in. It didn't capture Black Lives Matter. Uh, it didn't capture the Dreamer movement. It didn't capture uh, all of the different hashtags that are used on Twitter. Twitter to challenge different social inequities. There was no way to check that off on a box and count that as a form of civic engagement for young people. And so we felt like it was time to push the field forward and talk about number one, uh, two things. Uh, first being this idea we keep saying of participatory culture. And that comes, I think last month on, on um, writing our civic futures, folks were thinking about Henry Jenkins' work, what was going on at the DML conference. But that's this idea that we're living in a different time so our civic engagement is structured differently because our modes of communication and engagement are different today with what's available online. Uh, so we wanted to kind of play with this idea of what young people are doing uh, to challenge inequities in ways that civic engagement specialists couldn't have even imagined uh, a few years ago. Uh, and then the second part, obviously from our experience, was this idea of YPAR, which is an acronym for Youth Participatory Action Research. Uh, it's a fancy acronym that gets at the idea of challenging the traditional paradigm of research as being something that happens uh, in an objective way by outsiders looking in on a population and flipping the script to talk about young people being the experts of their own experiences and directing their own research projects through modes of expression and engagement that are meaningful to them as opposed to being meaningful only to the structures of traditional power. So we kind of wanted to use those two experiences that we've had through NWP and through our work uh, and do a bunch of literature reviews and draw on our own experiences to kind of create this conceptual argument. Um, like Ontario said, it can, it can seem a little dense sometimes and it seems like, you know, words aren't as important as action, but we do feel like if we want to keep talking about the idea of civics, just using the words participation and engagement just don't seem like they're enough anymore and that semantics become an important way to open up new conversations. So we felt like getting into that world of interrogation and innovation is a way to kind of hopefully push the field forward a little bit. That is awesome background. So I think that that is really helpful in terms of <clears throat> we, we can certainly come back to questions about why par. We can certainly come back to um, interrogation and innovation. Uh, you know, as we're getting into the discussion about the reading, I think it's important that we return to the uh, Ontario's grandma test in terms of like, like the judging the engagement of any piece of writing. But before we do that, I wonder if Ramey might speak a little bit about the marginal syllabus project. And also, you know, I think Ontario kind of hinted that there might be perhaps work that a reader community could do alongside a text that was is focused toward a, a research audience. So maybe you could speak to a little bit about piece that is primarily for an academic audience. Sure. So thanks, Nicole and Ontario, for joining us today as authors. And it's really inspiring to hear about your work. And it's great to engage with this uh, really substantial research article that you were just mentioning that touches upon, you know, and, and does, as, as was just mentioned, push the field forward around notions of participation and engagement to ask what types of civics matter for whom and under what conditions and, and what aspects of that innovation and imagination are important to bring forward. 
And so the purpose of an effort like marginal syllabus is to bring a group of readers into conversation with that text and perhaps to bring a group of readers into conversation with the authors of that text beyond perhaps the readers of a particular academic journal. And so I'll begin by first describing uh, what we mean by annotation and web annotation and how a project like Marginal Syllabus uses web annotation to engage in these types of public conversations. So when people think about annotation, we might think of annotation as the addition of new information to some type of source text. And in this case, the source text is the article by Nicole and Ontario. And annotation might include things like jotting notes in the margins when you read something, or highlighting aspects like in a book, or even adding sticky notes or footnotes to, again, this text. And what web annotation does is it allows us to take all of those reading practices and make them digital, and then perhaps to also use them as a way of sharing information with a community of readers. And so web annotation is an opportunity to then support social reading where multiple readers can both synchronously and asynchronously gather atop a text, atop a reading, and use those annotation practices to have a conversation, to discuss the text, and in some cases to do so with authors. And so in the Marginal Syllabus Project, we're using a free open source technology called Hypothesis, which allows us to use web annotation as a means of conversation. And when we talk about marginal syllabus, we're very intentionally using that term as a double entendre, and a double entendre that has both political and technical implications. And so we're engaging with authors or with ideas that might be marginal to dominant conventions of schooling and learning. And so again, the kinds of civic imagination work that Ontario and Nicole are writing about when they talk about the Dreamers movements or Black Lives Matter and the relevance of that to classroom schooling, we might consider those ideas politically marginal to the way that we typically think about schooling in America. And of course, the name marginal syllabus is also a technical double entendre because we're having conversations in the margins of a text and we're using the margins as a kind of hybrid space to begin to have reader-reader interactions and ideally reader-author interactions. And so we see these marginal syllabus conversations as a means of, again, engaging authors around conversations that are important for educational equity. And we've put together an entire year now of author partnerships and publisher partnerships uh, and conversations like this webinar to host this current syllabus all organized around the idea of writing our civic future. And that's, of course, where we begin our conversation with Ontario and Nicole. Awesome. So we have a fancy double entendre and we have a fancy acronym, YPAR. And we have this, this article that may not engage Ontario's grandma, but it engaged me. And uh, I think. Um, Let's see, so where to start the conversation about the text? Um, well, first, I just wanna show off an annotation because this will be one of the few occasions where we don't have the, uh, the article digitally available online before we have this type of a conversation with authors. So, so typically when we transition to this type of conversation, people will be able to look back at their annotations at, that have already been public and maybe even conversation threads will have already started to form. But in this case, you know, because we're doing this, this webinar pre-recorded, I was stuck with paper and a highlighter and a pen. 
And so I did things like this. This is the table Nicole was talking about. And I just wrote like the delta sign for changing. And then I wrote a question mark. And then, because I wondered how those characteristics of citizenship might change. And then just to prove that I did the reading is like here where we're discussing YPAR and the article brought up things like Black Lives Matter. I wondered to what degree are things like Black Lives Matter or some of the little p political acts that youth might um, engage in online. Um, are those considered YPAR in the wild? So those are a few of the questions that's, that I was kind of proud of writing in the margins when I was doing my homework. So maybe that'll kick off a conversation. I love those. I love those questions, Joe, and I love your your old school annotations. And we're excited once these do get out into the world, and we hope to be annotating with everyone. So we're excited to see where people take this when it gets online. Uh, I think that's a great question about kind of young people in the wild on their own uh, doing stuff online and what the difference is between that and YPAR. I think, uh, and Ontario can can follow me up on this, but I think the YPAR, uh, a lot of folks consider YPAR to be an example of young people going off on their own, right? The, the adults have no role to play in YPAR, that adults have to basically sit themselves down, get out of the way, and just let young people kind of go off in whatever direction they choose. There is some truth to that, but there's also a lot of uh, issues with that. I think there's this idea that young people will automatically, uh, after spending a lot of years in a traditional schooling system, just be ready to kind of jump off into a research project of their own. And that's not always the case. Adults have a role to play, but it is a different role than a lot of us have been taught as teachers to play. It's a role of facilitation uh, rather than a role of, of direct instruction. So there is a lot of adult support to YPAR. So there's, there's a lot of adult framing, uh, possible avenues, uh, setting up interviews with folks that young people could interview, setting up resources, uh, so there's a lot of structuring that goes on around what young people are fascinated with and what they're interested in pursuing. I would say that when young people are online on different social media networks, there's not always that sense of structure that's put in place. So a lot of times this is where we get into conversations of, you know, where are young people getting their information from? How are they choosing to express themselves? What happens when fake news is, is, is getting into the mix? Uh, how, do, how do young people navigate that? I think that's where we get into the idea that that new media environment uh, doesn't necessarily have the same adult um, facilitation that YPAR does. And that could be a good thing and it can also be a challenge. And so it's something that I think we would both agree we need to start thinking in civic education, not only about things like YPAR, but also about things like how do we teach young people about participatory politics without stifling the freedom and the innovation that they need on their own to go ahead and create new forms of expression that, that adults we couldn't even think of. Yeah, I'll just I'll pick up on that because I think there's a there's a growing um, extension of YPAR that people are calling IPAR, uh, uh, and so instead of youth participatory action research, uh, it's intergenerational uh, participatory action research, right? To think through uh, and and point to the intentionality that it's not just youth that are a part of this work, right? But uh, as adults and as facilitators, we all play a part in this. And I would just I would circle back to why the why of YPAR is, is there at the front. And it's about both recognizing um, 
the youth as experts in this current moment, right? That although all of us, you know, have been uh, young people in the past, we don't understand, you know, what it is to be, uh, might have been further in the past for some of us. Uh, uh, it, our, our experiences are different from an experience of, um, you know, growing up now when there is uh, various forms of Muslim bans being issued, when there are forms of um, oppression, when an alt-right and, uh, as Nicole pointed to, you know, fake fake news. You know, these are these are terms that are, are thrown around uh, and are shaping, you know, the fabric of how under, young people understand the world around them. So we want to recognize, you know, this epistemological stance. Sorry, using non-grandma words for a second, um, but this this understanding of where knowledge comes from and that young people possess a kind of knowledge that, as adults, we can't just fill these empty vessels with, right? To think about different models of education. Um, and I think because of that, I, I want to, I, I go back to Joe's Delta that he, he made with his homework, right? That the notion of civics is also changing. Uh, and so thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be politically engaged today? So the, 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 the forms of, uh, of civics that are, are identified traditionally in the civics literature points to, as Nicole pointed to, um, you know, voting and, and participating in a food drive, um, or reading the newspaper. And while those things are still, you know, forms of civic engagement, they don't speak to the ways that people actually participate um, often today, uh, and also limits who gets to participate, right? So as citizenship becomes, you know, an increasingly contested ideological and literal space um, for young people, and as we talk about walls being built or not being built, and they need to be see-through so people don't get hit over the head, um, like all of these are, are important things to think about in terms of what does it mean to be a citizen in the United States and be able to participate, right? So we should be agitating uh, around these words and having conversations about what they mean and, and being able to push upon those. Uh, so when we think about YPAR in the wild, uh, I think my favorite Reese Witherspoon film adaptation maybe, right? This seems like the place where we think about, you know, what does this look like in our localized context? And it's going to be different, right? The work that Nicole and I did in LA is going to be different from the work she's continuing to do in New York. And it's going to be different from the work that um, other participants in the marginal syllabus work are doing, you know, throughout uh, the world right now. So, gonna, oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Ramey. I did want to. Yeah, I want to kind of pick up on, I think, an interesting point that Ontario just made, which is uh, Ontario emphasizing this idea of agitating and pushing back on certain words or certain terms, such as citizenship or notions of youth or the intergenerational space of doing um, participatory action research. And to me, without providing an answer, because it may not be my place to do so, nor may, be the, nor may there be a single answer to the, you know, uh, these important questions, uh, this is precisely why we're inviting educators into these conversations and using annotation as a, as a medium um, to do so. And so if, if educators in particular have questions about notions of citizenship, if educators are curious about how youth uh, act as citizens in ways that may be more or less um, aligned with these traditional measures and may challenge educators' presumptions about what it means to be an active citizen. Um, the ability for um, engagement, educator engagement, around a text like the article that Nicole and Ontario have written and to really use annotation as a way of kind of keying into these words and these phrases and really unpacking their meaning 
and questioning their meaning and debating, uh, again, as Antero mentioned, across different contexts, what these words mean and how it then may be relevant to their practice, to projects they see youth engaging in. Um, that's precisely why we hope that um, educators are joining these types of conversations and using annotation as a way of opening up uh, these types of rich conversations because these are very much contested terms and spaces. And these are ideas that are very dynamic and we wanna kind of expose that uh, dynamic quality um, in a very open-ended way. And I appreciate, I should say, of course, that Ontario and Nicole's scholarship pushes us to really question in these kind of more expansive ways, uh, dare I say maybe more equitable ways, what these terms mean and how they play out, particularly in the lives of youth. And I just wanted to piggyback, thank you, Ramy. But uh, it makes, it, during the process of writing the article, we were lucky enough to have the mentorship of some senior scholars to help us revise. And uh, uh, one of our colleagues, Shredin Vasaji at Northwestern, was extremely helpful in helping us to like you were saying, interrogate these these terms. And I feel like that's one of the reasons why civic engagement and citizenship is so in need of further analysis, because even the word, we realized that we had to define, and we do that in the article, we had to basically define the fact that we are using the term citizen while knowing that there are a group of young people in our schools right now that are not necessarily considered citizens because the term has become about a legal possession as, a, as opposed to the idea of practices that we engage in in our communities. Uh, so even the word itself doesn't really capture uh, the, 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 the political nature and the multiple forms of practices that young people are dealing with right now. So we felt like that was really important um, to mention in the article. But I think that, like you're, like you're saying, in some ways, the context keeps changing and annotation and uh, helps us to kind of keep the text alive and not letting it get like kind of dead. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciated that piece. And I think particularly as a reader, you know, who, I mean, I engage with research articles from time to time. And I think that the definition of terms sometimes sticks out to me as, you know, as a, a hoop maybe that academics have to jump through when they write. But I think in this, in this piece, it's pretty clear that, you know, there are some, some words you're calling into question that like the definitions really do matter to practitioners. And it's, it's less of, you know, I mean, while it's academic, it's less, you know, I wouldn't just say it's academic. It certainly sort of matters how we just define what is civic and who's a citizen in this case. Um, the, the other thing that, and maybe it was just my reading, but I think early on, um, you talked about how best practices in the humanities or particularly with like, you know, civics education point to a lot of the, a lot of to sort of the, the terms and some of these practices that you really think are problematic. And so I wondered if you could speak a little bit about um, just the notion of best practices, because as, you know, as a, as a reader and a teacher, I was kind of, that was the part that maybe jumped out as me, to me as really relevant, the, the notion that, hey, you know, this concept of best practices itself might have to be challenged, and these specific things that have been named as best practices also are really prob problematic right now. So can you talk about the notion of best practices maybe? Yeah, I'll jump in. I actually think, so this comes back to this idea of language and, and why we use, you know, the words we do and oftentimes without, you know, the kind of critical thought we need to with those words. So uh, during last year's AERA conference, the American Educational Research Association, which is a big non-grandma-y, or at least not my grandma -y, but there are grandmas who go to this conference. 
um, but uh, just not mine. Um, big academic conference. Um, Nicole started or instigated a, a, I think, a really powerful Twitter argument, maybe fight, um, with a journalist who basically called out all of the different uh, sessions that had really fancy titles and was trying to, I think, and Nicole, you can probably correct me, but was pointing to the absurdity of, you know, words that have, uh, or have conference titles that have big fancy titles that, you know, uh, might suggest, you know, what is the frivolous nature of what academic research is. Uh, and Nicole pointed to, in ways that felt really illuminating, you know, then the reason we have these complex words, uh, we, you know, post-colonial, critical feminist epistemology, right? These, these, multi, these polysyllabic phrases, right, uh, is to contest the traditional ways that we understand the world around us. And so we need to be really intentional with language and get around that. And then that gets down to, you know, even fundamental words like we talked about of citizenship, of civics, of participation, of English. And I think, to me, that gets back to, I think what your, your question was, Joe, of, you know, what does it mean to have a best practice? Um, and so best, you know, there, there's an implied hierarchy in why one thing is better than another. Uh, and to assume that there's a specific way of being, I think, limits the possibilities of what happens in classrooms on a day-to-day basis and assumes that although teachers are experts, they're not the only experts in a classroom and what's supposed to be happening in that classroom. And so when I think about best practices, what I struggle with is it, it points back to the teacher as a laborer uh, and as a laborer that's supposed to do a rote task, right? So when I'm supposed to teach X content in my classroom, right? I, I take this cog and I implement it in my classroom and therefore my students have learned in the right way, right? Um, but this all assumes that all students are, you know, monolithic and that the experiences that all students need to learn are monolithic and that there aren't, you know, the kind of diverse and hybrid necessary learning contexts that happen around the world. Uh, and so to me, that's why best practices undermine the kinds of relationships and the kinds of day-to-day changes and nuances that should be happening in, in classrooms. Um, Nicole, maybe you can help clarify both the fight that you started and, and uh, some, of, some of this language as well. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I was, I was concerned about the fact that many um, folks in media, especially education media, were... Uh, really eager to kind of laugh not and I understand the urge to, to laugh at this language sometimes because sometimes academics it does seem like we're lost in jargon and when we're down on the ground as educators we don't need jargon we need to, things that work with kids but I was concerned that a lot of folks laugh at the jargon only when it is expressing a critical perspective or something that seems different than the norm so we don't laugh at complex economics terms uh, and quantitative analysis of numbers but we laugh when people are talking about personal experience as a basis for knowing um, or uh, critical um, feminist perspectives on, on issues that some folks would like to believe are objective. And that's concerning that, yes, academic language can be jargony, but sometimes there are changes in language, which is what we're arguing in this article, that changes in language are necessary and are important to bring into being people's realities and make them think about reality in a different way. So that's kind of why I was concerned with those uh, journalists at AERA, but, and also why we thought it was important to semantically talk about innovation and engagement, uh, interrogation instead of just participation and engagement. And then finally, Joe, to get to the point again, like to follow up on what Ontario was saying about best practices. I, as a teacher, I understand that we're always looking for ways of doing things that are uh, going to create the kinds of critical thinking that we all want from our students. 
but this idea of best practice again kind of gets rid of the idea of local context and that's the that's the fear there are certain habits of mind that i would say all teachers could take into account like if we all believe in reflection and action in our local contexts i think that would be a great best habit of mind for folks to have everywhere but to say that any particular practice is best implies that whether i'm living in alaska or in florida that i should be able to do the same thing the same way and that is the exact kind of thing that's going to stifle youth creativity it's what's going to stifle uh, teachers as professionals being able to analyze their context and do what's best for their students and i that's what we feel like is happening in civic education that we just kind of assume that certain forms of education about our three branches of government or about uh, the way that the traditional uh, civic system works is all that students need to know when in fact young people are turning to, to new media and are saying, we don't need these institutional gatekeepers to tell us uh, what it means to participate. I don't need to talk to my local congressman. I can, but I could also go online and create a, a video of my own experience uh, and post it online for, for countless numbers of people to see and create change from the outside as well. So I think that's why we kind of question this idea of best practices and would rather have people think about critical habits of mind and then use those habits of mind to interpret their local context in ways that work best for them. So Ramey, I'm curious about you as a reader, like what questions maybe you, you bring for the authors only because I could dominate Nicole and Ontario's time with my questions because I've already proven I've done the homework so I, and I'm sure you know, I'll, I'll, well I'll go ahead and suggest as a bit of a again we're pre-recording this webinar for folks who are going to jump in and join um, this conversation ideally via annotation and so I tried to do some homework as well having read uh, this article recently and so here's an annotation that I might add to the digital version of this so when this article is shared online We'll have educators coming together, again, using this open source uh, platform called Hypothesis. And so here's an annotation that I might have added, and it comes towards the end of um, Nicole Ontario's article. And so they write the following, and I'm down kind of on page 152 for folks who might be keeping score at home or eventually. And so they write, young people who recognize that their lived experiences do not comport to the narrative of the American dream and who take social action based on critical social analysis are engaged in the crucial work of interrogating the public sphere. And they go on, Nicole and Ontario go on to note that these youth are again disrupting these dominant ideas that showcase what they call bedrock inequities behind assumptions of fairness and equity. And so I might again highlight or annotate a phrase like that and I might then ask as a question, um, wh where do teachers fit here? If this is what youth are doing and these are their practices on their terms, the way that they are reading inequity uh, in this kind of notion of an American dream, if the youth are doing the ones of disrupting these narratives, again, using their language, their literacies, their means of participation, and I'm an educator and I'm reading this, I might ask, well, so what do I do? Where, how do I fit in this? Do I just follow their lead? But what does that mean in terms of me as an instructor? 
do I have some pedagogical moves? Maybe they're not best practices, like the rich conversation that uh, you know, the three of, of, of you just had kind of contesting that term. But I guess I'm kind of curious, like what would an educator's role be if that's what youth are doing? You want me to start? <laughs> Ontario's looking at me, okay. Uh, so I think number one, I think the first thing that it pushes us as educators to do is first of all to, to, to stop and kind of take stock of the civic experiences that we bring to the classroom as educators. I think a lot of times we're both now, you know, Ontario and I are both former K-12 educators and now we're both involved in teacher education at the university level. And we see that in many teacher education programs, there's not a lot of time for educators to unpack their own experiences, their own biases, their beliefs, and think about how they're going to manage those beliefs when they get into the classroom. We're still living under a situation where uh, teachers are expected to be kind of neutral, objective, blank slates themselves who are simply transmitting a body of content to young people. And we know that at the same time that that is never the case of what actually happens in the classroom. We can't separate our own identities and our own experiences from what we introduce into the classroom. Even if you try your best to present every side of every issue, what you choose to even teach in the first place, what you exclude, what you include, uh, how you develop relationships with your students, how you think about discipline and management, those are all political choices to be made. So I think if, as young people are disrupting, we need to think about ourselves and what, how the practices we introduce into the classroom are either supporting young people to question, supporting them to be critical, supporting them to disrupt, and facilitating that kind of those habits of mind, or are we imposing certain beliefs and certain structures and practices upon young people with our instruction? I think that's a constant dance. I mean, the fact that we are teachers who are agents of the state in some ways inside institutions uh, of public schools, uh, where, where students don't have all the rights they have as citizens outside of school, that is always gonna put us as teachers in a very um, tension-filled space. But I think that can be a generative tension for teachers to think about how can I, if I want my students to be uh, critical consumers of information and I want my students to be makers and producers when they get into the world, how does that make me rethink the fact that I can't just be giving direct instruction or I can't always be teaching to a test uh, even when the system is telling me that that's what I need to do. So we're constantly having to push back against those barriers um, for our young people. Yeah, I think building off of that, I think this is an invitation um, to imagine as all of as all of our viewers do their homework um, it, it seems like a place to to think about you know rather than simply unpacking you know what these connections might mean uh, I would be really interested in the ways that teachers could imagine or question what this has and can continue to look like in classrooms right and so that might be some uncertainty so I could imagine teachers writing things here right this is the invitation um, I think I've done this in this way, right? Or if I did this activity, what do you think, right? That uh, in the margin seems like a place for a call to action to be built, right? And to, to kind of take steps towards action together. Um, and so as we think about, you know, these bedrock inequities, uh, I, think, I think this is a space for us to imagine, you know, what, how do I address those and which inequities are named and not named in my classroom on a day-to-day, year-to-year basis, right? Which which pieces are left on the floor and which ones are taken up by the classroom? How do I um, how do I talk about you know 
patriarchal stances. You know, as we as we talk right now, you know, Hollywood is reeling in, you know, uh, as you know, unsurprisingly, uh, white male privilege has has reigned supreme for a long time and probably will continue to, right? Despite the fact that Harvey Weinstein is no longer a part of the Weinstein Company, right? So thinking about these events, right? Likewise, as we have this conversation, uh, there there is a controversy around. Uh, kneeling at football games. It turns out I've been I've been boycotting uh, football my entire life, uh, and so it just feels particularly relevant right now. Um, but we can think about you know when how are these and how are these not taken up in our classrooms, right? These are these are important issues to think about. Uh, and as Nicole pointed to, right, as teachers and as agents of the state, if we're thinking about public education, we're in this difficult position that I'd love to think through. Like, what's this mean in my day to day job, right? Of both trying to do work that pushes the line forward in terms of what social justice looks like, uh, while also recognizing that we are part of a system that is oftentimes complicit in the kinds of symbolic and literal violence that is inflicted upon young people every day, right? So I think there's this tension, and what we do about that tension is, is probably important, and to even recognize the tension is a step, right? Uh, but then to think through, you know, what are my actions doing around that uh, is also important. So, sorry, this is a long-winded way of saying, I'm hoping that in sentences like this and elsewhere in the document, uh, it's not just saying, hey, I think this is what this means, right, the, the grandma translation stuff, but uh, here's what I would want to do in my classroom, here's how I'm going to do it, because if we can crowdsource around community building, I think that's that's where we actually see some some change, you know, in the long run. Yeah, I guess I think as you name, as you both have named situations that are occurring like right now in quote unquote current events, right? I think that it's also interesting to think about um, best practices with respect to, you know, what public, what teachers in public education are charged with doing at the same time that like public schools are under attack and the, the notion that like private school teachers don't really feel the, the pressure to teach to a test that's also supporting, you know, this perpetual undermining of the institution that's sort of paying us, et cetera. So sort of like the agents of the state as the state sort of undoes itself. I think that's, that's pretty interesting. And I also think it speaks to the complexity of, of the work that's needed and how the margins hold potential as places where we can say, Hey, you know, Hey, let's, let's think twice about, what are best practices? These best practices, where are they really going to get us? So I don't know, because I know Ramey, you know, as someone who also works at a public institution, you can speak about maybe how that, how you think through those issues. Well, and I think a lot of my maybe most productive or meaningful thinking happens with other people. Um, and it is not, you know, entirely a result of, you know, any kind of individual creative genius that I may have. And that's why I appreciate you and Nicole, you know, who mentioned earlier the importance of in the act of writing and the act of producing scholarship, she turns to colleagues like Shireen and others who say, well, what do you mean by citizen? Um, but I, you know, I appreciate these comments, you know, in response to, to, to this question, because as you know, has been pointed out here, um, classrooms don't have some type of, you know, uh, well, they may have some concrete walls that, 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 that may attempt to separate them or segregate them from other aspects of, of everyday reality. We know that classroom walls are very much uh, fluid and flexible spaces as teachers and students, most certainly in youth. 
you know, move through these spaces with their interests and their commitments and their values and aspects of their culture and identity every day. And so conversations about kneeling uh, during a football game or conversations about uh, abuse of power, whether in a, the context of Hollywood or the context of the highest off political office in the land, are very much on the, the minds of our, of our, of our youth uh, and our students. And so, you know, maybe that kind of, you know, how does one begin to do that thinking? How does, how does a group of educators in particular say, how might we respond? Um, that takes some working out. And that takes, I think, some collective questioning or some collective debate or a lot of transparency. And I think that that's maybe the kind of most, um, the simplest, but at the same time, maybe the most radical ask of, of a project like the marginal syllabus, which is to say, hey, this is an invitation for educators who are curious about these types of issues, who are thinking about protest and participation and imagination, and are wondering maybe, I have colleagues who are asking similar questions, or I'm listening to my students in class talk about these issues. And one of the things that I then might do as, as one response, amongst many responses, is to voluntarily uh, pick up uh, certainly a, uh, what, what might appear to be a kind of jargon-filled, but honestly quite uh, you know, clear and, and, and transformative article like the one that Nicole and Antero have authored, and to say, I want to read this. I want to read this, and I want to use it as a conversational space with my colleagues to really wrestle with these issues, because I probably can't wrestle with them. I can't wrestle maybe with these issues alone. Um, and so if I am, you know, so yes, I am a public educator and I value the fact that I've been a public educator for 12 years in different systems at different levels in different contexts, but being public means maybe wrestling publicly with these, uh, topics. It means questioning these ideas publicly. And our hope is that, uh, we provide an, an, an invitation and some, and some supports both socially and technically for people to have those types of conversations around these particular um, important questions. Remy, can, can I add on to that or make a, a parallel? So just a parallel observation of this idea of who produces, but also who has access to knowledge, right? So in terms of, you know, why we, why there's an invitation to have a conversation around, you know, text that's oftentimes for, you know, a boring audience, right? Academic audience, right? That uh, for better or worse, we are members of, right? Hopefully for better. Um, but when, when, when Nicole and I do work with a group like the Council of Youth Research, uh, we're intentional in bringing texts that are important to having conversations around critical consciousness, around liberation, uh, despite the kinds of layers of difficulty to them, uh, and, and building up conversations around them. And so that means uh, having high school youth oftentimes reading texts by authors like Paolo Freire, by Bell Hooks, um, by other, you know, American Educational Research Association scholars, right, that they're a part of this conversation. And oftentimes the work that happens in YPAR projects is speaking back to and informing the conversations that have been happening over several generations of critical research. So I just want to point to, while we're asking a lot of teachers, this isn't a different kind of demand of what we ask of young people who are involved in uh, critical and intellectual work as well. Yeah, and I would just also add on to that. I was just thinking about what we what we do ask of our schools and what we ask of our teachers. Uh, and I was struck by, I was doing a little research in the past week that after the white supremacist marches in Charlottesville and after uh, the NFL protests began and after even uh, the mass shooting in Las Vegas, 
uh, if you go online and you type in um, how to teach about, and you put in any of these recent controversies, there have been articles put out by every major news organization, New York Times, NPR, Teaching Tolerance. Every organization is putting out lists of resources for teachers because they know that young people are going to be experiencing all of these issues in our country and they are going to come to their teachers with questions and they're going to come to their teachers wanting more information and wanting to talk about things. And I think that's so interesting that we, at the same time that we do that, at the same time that we recognize that teachers are some of the people on the front lines who young people need to talk to about these issues and that we are encouraging them by giving them resources to do that, that at the same time we have such a, a problem when teachers or students are getting into controversial political issues in the classroom. And then we see these stories on the other end of students or teachers being disciplined or um, told that, the, that we can't talk about these things or we have to talk about them in a very isolated way as if they aren't happening right in front of us. And so I think we're talking about reading academic work, but we're also talking about the fact that teachers, we, we are asking our teachers to help our young people become people that will stop these tragedies from continuing to occur. We want our students to be the people that correct our generation's mistakes but then we are upset when we talk about what that's going to take uh, and the kind of interrogation and innovation that we need our students to take to, to take us out of the situation that we're currently in. Um, and I think that's what our article, we're hoping that the annotation process can really help explode that point. We wanna see the ways that educators are thinking about how to do this. How do we take these barriers down? How do we let our students become the next generation to do things differently? Um, I think that's what's really exciting about the ways that academic work, as much as we make fun of it, we, we are doing this for a reason and that we think that it can open up spaces for a uh, really transformative conversation and action uh, like across the country, hopefully. I think that's really helpful. We have about seven minutes left. And uh, one of the things just to kind of um, build on what you just talked about, Nicole, in terms of like action that people can take. And I think we've, we've definitely talked about, you know, the importance of the academic work, and hopefully we haven't been too playful about important academic work. Um, still, I want to share some of my homework, if it's okay, since we've all gathered. Um, one of my fabulous annotations that I hope translates well to digital was this part where I, I highlighted just a, a few phrases here, and I just wrote, tensions lurk, scholars debate. So it was a little bit of maybe found poetry, right, at the bottom of of one of these pages, page 139, if anyone's sort of interested. But you know, this notion that tensions lurk in scholars debate, and I was thinking about best practices, et cetera. And I've also also thinking like as a as an English teacher about like the reading wars, right? And the notion that, you know, 50 years from now, I don't think it it serves our students if we've just, you know, made made the 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 arguments on one side stronger or you know, weightier with, with text. And I think that the action that Nicole was kind of recommending is sort of what I hope sort of surfaces, at whether it's surfacing in the margins, certainly I hope it's surfacing in classrooms and with, with youth in and out of classroom spaces. So I, I like thinking about the notion of like, you know, best practices historically as things that sort of add to one side of a debate or another that can go on forever and leave students, you know, sort of, left left you know maybe not serving them as you know agents so anyway this notion of tensions tensions that lurk scholars that, that can debate and then how do we move forward with action so can we talk a little bit about action 
We're like looking at each other across the uh, across the Zoom to see who's going to go first. <laughs> I yeah, did I my homework, that, but I didn't write really good questions. So. <laughs> no, that's an amazing question. I think it gets to the heart of what this is all about. And I think that first, when we're talking about those of us in the university space who are creating these kinds of articles, I think it's really important for Ontario and I to create identities as public scholars where this work is getting debated and that we are actually doing something with it and going into classrooms and creating research projects that honor and privilege the voices of young people and teachers. Uh, because if we're not out there, we, we can start a debate. You know, we could put a lot of these concepts out there and put them into conversation with each other. But if that's all we're going to do, and then we step back and kind of remove ourselves from the messiness of actually figuring out what this means in practice, then that's pretty much just an academic exercise. And then there's not much value to that. So I think that, uh, for example, uh, we keep on mentioning this idea of one YPAR project that we've been involved in, the UCLA Council of Youth Research. Uh, when we were both uh, graduate students, we had the great fortune of getting involved with a project that had been going on for years uh, that was started by Drs. Ernest Morell and John Rogers. Uh, they kept on getting uh, people from school districts coming to them and saying, you are experts in education take a look at what's going on in our schools and tell us why we're seeing these inequities persist. You know, you're the experts, tell us what we can do. And to that question, their response was that young people are the people that are sitting in the classrooms every day and are experiencing these inequities firsthand. So maybe we should talk to them. And it seems like it's such a simple shift to be made, but I think it, it is also a transformative radical shift in saying that we turn to young people as, as the experts of their own lived experiences and let them guide us towards action. So ever since then, we've been working with you know, young people from high schools across LA, uh, working with teachers and working with research, research, researchers together in this kind of collaborative space. That's where we think that that's an action. It's taking these ideas we talk about in the article and making it real and actually trying to do something with it and learn from it to further the conversation. Uh, the council is no longer uh, active right now because everyone that's in it has now grown up to the fact where we're all spread across the country, but the work has now m like morphed and is, is, is in continuing in, in, in multiple different spaces. And that's the kind of thing that gives me hope about the idea that, of action that can emerge from these, from these kinds of articles and this kind of thinking so that we're not just spinning our wheels, but we're actually kind of uh, being generative in the world. Yeah, I would, I would add, I think, as we think about, you know, rather than just articulating, you know, what, uh, what we think should happen, um, start with the, the small things, right? So are there, are there moments of success in classrooms that, you know, teachers have seen, right? Uh, I'm speaking to a theoretical audience of the future, right? So uh, what, what have you seen in your classroom that has worked that seems like a moment of, you know, brokering civic imagination, right? Um, and, and just looking at the, the, Nicole and I don't have the answers here, right? This is us trying to think along about this alongside all of you. And so the part that Ramey was quoting is, is near the end of the article. Uh, and that header is moving from participation and engagement to interrogation and innovation. And I would just point to those as intentional moves, right? We talk a lot about civic participation and civic engagement when you dig into the literature. Uh, and, and all of the stuff that's led up to that part. Um, but what's it mean to be innovative in a classroom, for example, in, uh, in Denver in 2017, right? Like, what, what does that look like? And, what, and the, how is that going to look different from, you know, as, as we talk today, there's wildfires kind of spread throughout California and there's, you know, real threat to different people's homes and to the environment and to probably 
decentering like a human privileged nature of you know our, our view of the world around us and so these are real opportunities for us to think through you know what does it mean to broker different kinds of conversations today than we might have in the past well we have about one minute remaining and so Ramey I want to make sure if you have any sort of last takeaways would be great because I feel like that was a, a great close. I mean, those were great closing ideas from Nicole and Ontario, but I want to give you a chance to maybe last word, last question kind of thing. I, I would just echo what Ontario uh, just mentioned, you know, kind of our mic drop moment, which is that, you know, we're trying to broker new types of conversations about more equitable social futures. And so that's the key kind of goal of the marginal syllabus project. We are so thankful that both Nicole and Ontario uh, have agreed to be our partner authors and that they'll be kind of reading along with us and having conversations in the margins. And we hope that, again, the educators who are watching this also jump into those conversations as well. Oh, there we go. So I'd just like to <laughs> offer a final thanks to Nicole and Ontario for joining us and taking their time to converse with us. And, and for all the, the prompts you've sort of given to future readers of this text and how they might participate. And we sure look forward to uh, annotating in the margins of this chapter with us. So thank you so much, both of you, again. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs>